My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. And you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. Well, today we're going to conclude a teaching series we've been in the last few weeks called Hope in the Dark. And we've been going through this book called Habakkuk in our Bibles. And I have some good news for you today. Today we are not going to be in Habakkuk chapter 1. We're not going to be in Habakkuk chapter 2. And if you've been around the last few weeks, I hope that you are looking forward to what God has for us in chapter 3, hoping that we have something good in there for us. Are you ready for something good here today? Yeah. Well, some of you may know, uh, part of what I'm doing in life right now is I'm going through a, a master's program, pursuing a master's in counseling. And one of the words what we like to use in counseling is the word catharsis. Catharsis means this, it's a cataclysmic change in perspective that may or may not be accompanied by a change in circumstances. Catharsis involves change, but more than merely just a change in thinking, we're talking about some down-in-the-bones kind of change. Over the course of my life, I've experienced, I would say, three cathartic moments at, at three major change points in my life. And the first one came on my knees in my bedroom as a senior in college. See, my freshman year ended with a phone call that rocked my world. My dad called and said that he and my mom were getting a divorce after 26 years. And, and that just flipped my world upside down. After all, if their marriage wasn't true, what else had they taught me that wasn't true? So I spent the next several years searching around for wherever I might find meaning, apart, mostly apart from God, because I felt betrayed by God through their divorce. And, and yet every avenue I went down, it seemed to only lead me deeper and deeper into despair, to where I ended up on my knees in my bedroom begging for God to meet with me. And the way God responded to that moment changed the very storyline of my life. The second cathartic moment came on the top of a hill in Arkansas. They call it Pinnacle Mountain, but we Westerners know better. It's a hill. It's a hill. But this change, this came in the middle of a, a deep season of struggle in my marriage. And in fact, it followed the, probably the worst three days of my entire life. I couldn't sleep. I was having severe panic attacks, one on top of the other. I felt utterly overwhelmed by life. At that moment, I felt completely abandoned and alone. And yet also a sense that God was with me and, and more than that was guiding me. And, and so a particular day, I left in the morning, I left the house. I didn't know where I was going to end up. It was just this, this place of just wandering in my life. But I ended up at the base of Pinnacle Mountain with a sense that God wanted me to climb and meet me at the top of the mountain. 
It's about a thousand foot. It's pretty steep. And so as I was like going up there the whole way, I had this, this sense that God was leading me to the point where I was just in that last rise to get over the top. And I was my, my soul was starting to rise up in expectation of what God was going to do. And I got up there and there was nothing. It's normally really crowded, normally a really active spot. And there was just one guy standing there about, you know, right 10, 15 yards away. And, and again, my heart just felt like it went off a cliff. And it was just a place of just, God, really? And then this gentleman turned around and walked toward me. And he said, wow, you look hot. Are you thirsty? And I realized, yes, I am, I am thirsty. I, I, didn't, I realized I didn't bring any water with me. And uh, let's just say it gets a little hot and humid in Arkansas. And so even though my knee-jerk reaction was to say no, I, I went ahead and said yes. And he, and he handed me this bottle of, of water. Hung on to it. It was kind of already been drunk out of. And so it was a little gross, you know, I thought. But I was thirsty. So I took it from him. And I turned around and I took a little sip. And I turned back around and he was gone. To this day, I wonder if he really was a man or if I met an angel. And at that moment, it was the closest I've ever come. I, I heard the voice of God. I say, it's the closest I've ever come to a tangible voice that says, I am here. And it felt like a burning bush kind of moment. You know, one of those where you're like, this is holy ground. God wanted to meet with me. And that moment sparked a season of change then growth that actually ended up leading me to a sense of being called the pastor. I, w- I wouldn't be up here except for that moment. The third cathartic moment came on a beach, off a, on a quiet cove on the Puget Sound up in Washington, not just a little short of three years ago. This one, again, reached the end of myself, and that seems to be where God meets us, right? It's when we're at the end of ourselves. And this particular one came after leading a church in the area here uh, through, a, through a season of difficult changes, through so difficult choices and decisions we had to go through. And so I ended up at a spiritual retreat up there on the Puget Sound on that beach, and I felt wounded, I felt defeated, and I felt utterly alone and abandoned. And once again, God met me in a very tangible way and cared for my heart in a way that brought a sense of renewal, a sense of desire to head back into that scenario, to lead with a fresh confidence. Even though the, the circumstances didn't change, we still faced some huge challenges. But I now face those challenges with a sense of peace like I'd never experienced before. Each one of those cathartic moments came during a season of struggle. It was also a season in which God was shaping me and, and teaching me through the Bible, through the faithfulness, you know, the encouragement of a faith, other faith-filled people, and through reminders from God of how he had met with me and carried me in seasons past. Each time I felt fresh confidence in God's goodness, and it strengthened my faith for the next season that he, that he had in mind for me. I needed to go through those so that for the strengthened faith for the next season. In each one of those, my circumstances didn't change. God didn't change. I changed. And that each time those changes led to deep-hearted, gladness-infused, unashamed tears coming down my cheeks kind of worship. And that is what's going on in Habakkuk chapter 3. So if you haven't been here the last couple of weeks, I just want to take a few moments to bring you up to speed. Habakkuk is found in our Old Testament, what we call the Minor Prophets. He lived and wrote about 600 years before the birth of Jesus. 
he was a different kind of prophet than most, whereas most prophets spoke from God to the people, he spoke from the people to God. And in particular, he brought a lament or an utterance was the word he used, a message of doom from the people to God. Chapter one is about Habakkuk wondering, wondering to God why what he saw with his eyes was so different than what he felt in his heart, what he believed in his heart about God. It's, it's honest, it's raw, it's full of emotion. He kept wondering why, why is it, and, and we wonder the same thing, why is it when we see that it seems like God could do something, we believe he should do something, and he doesn't. We find ourselves wondering, and Habakkuk was wondering, God, why don't you seem to care? But the thing about Habakkuk in chapter 1 is he refused to let go of God. He wrestled with God instead of walking away from God. And in fact, his name provides the theme not for the entire book, right? It means, name Habakkuk means to wrestle and to embrace at the same time, to hang on even as you're wrestling. You wrestle instead of walking away. So chapter one is about wrestling. Chapter two is about waiting and waiting and waiting some more. We were introduced to the word moed. Moed in Habakkuk, that's the Hebrew word for God's perfect, unstoppable timing. When it's moed, you know that when when it's not God's time, you you can't make it, force it. When it is God's time, you can't stop it. Moed reminds us that God's delays are not God's denials. Some of you are in a waiting zone right now. You find yourself saying, God, when are you gonna answer my prayers? God says, though my answer seems slow, wait for it. Wait for it. They will surely come to pass what I have promised. Chapter 1 is about wondering. Chapter 2 is about waiting. Chapter 3 is about worshiping. And it brings a shift in tone. You see, you need to understand when you're reading the scriptures, the different tone that that you're reading from. When you're reading all the way through chapter one in Habakkuk and all the way chapter two, the tone that Habakkuk is writing with is, is, is full of agony and angst and disappointment. Why, God, aren't you doing what I want you to do? All the way to the end of chapter two. But in the chapter two at verse 20, there's this shift that occurs. And it's one of those but God moments. Habakkuk's basically saying, though I'm confused, though I'm questioning, though I'm doubting, I believe the Lord remains on his throne. I believe he's still there in his temple. That hasn't changed. God hasn't changed. Habakkuk 2 verse 20 ends with him saying, let the earth be silent before him. It's like the invitation that comes in Psalm 46.10. Be still and know that I am God. Habakkuk 2.20 is a reset for Habakkuk. And then chapter 3 has a very different feel to it, a very different tone. So let's get started in verse 1. Verse 1, it says, This prayer was sung by the prophet Habakkuk. Now, this is the New Living Translation. It's what we use here on Sunday mornings. We do it because it's very readable, but all translations are interpretations. They're coming from the original language of Hebrew. Uh, If you want to study something that's a more literal translation, you turn to something like the English Standard Version. So I'd like to do that. Put that up here, the English Standard Version. It says this, A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shiganoth. Everybody say Shiganoth. 
Some of you are wondering if you just swore in church. <laughs> but many of you are probably wondering, what is Shiganoth? And that's easy. It's the plural of Shigan. There you go. So what is Shigan, right? Well, the word Shigan is only used once in our Bible. It comes as the introduction to Psalm chapter, Psalm, Psalm chapter 7. Shiganoth is only used here in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 1. So Shiganoth, what we don't know, we don't know exactly what it means, but we can infer that from its two usages that it's a musical term that, that's in, it's introducing something about what, how the person, the writer wants us to, to interpret or to, to express what's going on. That's why it, it's, it's a musical term. That's why the New Living Translation says it was sung, the prayer was sung by Habakkuk. But even more than that, the term provides direction for how to sing the song. It'd be like Pastor Aaron here on a Sunday morning introducing a new song saying, I want you to sing this like a love song to God. Okay, that tells you how to sing it. Or maybe he wants to, let's sing this one a little bit with a little bit of jazz flair. Okay, that's, that's what's kind of, Shiganoth is kind of like that. And based on its usage here and in Psalm 7, we can infer that it means to sing with strong emotion. When I researched the word, one scholar said it meant wild, passionate singing with rapid changes in rhythm. Another said it was high-spirited praise with strong emotion, frenzied even. In other words, you got to get your groove on to sing this. And if you don't have a groove, you better get one real quick because you're going to need it. I like how another scholar contrasted Shiganoth with a cry in your beer ballad. Basically, if you want to moan and cry, you know, go find yourself a good country song. That's not Shiganoth. Another one said it's praise punctuated with exclamation marks. And I like that one because that reminds me of getting a text from my daughter, Rebecca. My oldest daughter, she's, she's not here living in the area anymore. She's down in Texas, so I don't get to hear her voice much. But we, we text a lot, and I can kind of gauge the level of excitement based on how many exclamation points she uses in her texts. For example, she'll, she'll say something like this, Dad, you wouldn't believe the band I just heard. And I can almost I can hear her voice, and I can think, okay, three exclamation points. She's pretty excited about that. But then I get one like this. Dad, guess what happened at work today? And I'm thinking, ooh, seven exclamation points. This must have been really good. I better call her and find out what happened. <laughs> Praise punctuated by exclamation parts. So basically, as we approach Habakkuk chapter 3, we need to hear Habakkuk inviting us into full body, all in, exuberant, dozens of exclamation points kind of worship with... This is important, with a clarification. Praise before God's provision that we'd like for him to come through with. Praise before the provision. You see, it seems counterintuitive, but the most passionate worship the most authentic worship is the worship that comes before the provision because that's worship rooted in faith. We praise God not for the what, but for the who. We praise God for who he is, the wonder, the beauty, the magnificence, his goodness, his grace, his, his, his glory, for who he is more than for what he does. That's Shiganoth. Now Habakkuk wrote this chapter 
to invite his people to worship God with him before the promises are fulfilled, the provision that they longed for. And his song has three sections. The first section is found in verse 2. In verse 2, he says, I have heard all about you, Lord. I am filled with awe by your amazing works. In this time of our deep need, help us again as you did in years gone by. And in your anger, remember your mercy. We might call this section of Habakkuk's song his cry of the soul. It's that cry that comes after the but the Lord moment that we saw in verse 20 of chapter 2. This moment comes when you realize only God can save you. From God, from the depths of my being, I'm declaring my relational trust in you no matter what happens next in my life. Habakkuk has learned what we need to learn. And that is that surrender is the only door through which God enters our lives. There is no other door. The second section of Habakkuk's song is the, it's the bulk of the song. It's in verses three through 15. And, it, and in it, Habakkuk is declaring with passion, God, his passion for God through, through words, through images, and through story. It begins in, chapter, in, in verse three. He says, I see God moving across the deserts from Edom. And the original language is Taman. And the Holy One coming from Mount Paran. His brilliant splendor fills the heavens and earth is filled with his praise. Habakkuk says, God came from this place called Taman and this other one for the place called Mount Paran. And those places probably don't get anything going, going for you here today. But for Habakkuk and his people, these were special places. These were meaningful because they were the two places that God took his people after he rescued them from slavery in Egypt. Habakkuk is saying, God, I remember when we thought our people would be in bondage forever. I remember when you moved to the heart of Pharaoh, you split the, the, the sea and we walked through it on dry grand, ground and then you destroyed our enemies behind us. Yeah, we remember that. Images like that evoke what scientists call sense memory. Scientists have discovered that we remember and recall events best when they involve our five senses. Like, for example, you may drive by a house and it reminds you of the house you lived in when you were a teenager. And you remember all the crazy things you did with your friend as a teenager. You know, the ones your mom and dad still don't know about? (laughs) Yeah, those. Or you hear a siren. And before you're even thinking about it, your body is reacting emotionally because it reminds you of that time your baby sister had to get taken to the emergency room. Smells in particular, scientists say, are invokers of memory. I mean, put an apple pie in front of me and I just get all soft inside because my mom made the best apple pie. I mean, it's like immediately I'm eight years old. It's Thanksgiving. I'm surrounded by the people I love and who loved me. Or I remember the, or I smell a perfume that reminds me of the perfume my wife wore when we first met. And it reminds me that, let's just say it reminds me of my four kids. If you know what I mean. I better move along. Verse four, verse four. 
His coming is as brilliant as the sunrise. Rays of light flash from his hands where his awesome power is hidden. Pestilence marches before him. Plagues follow close behind. When he stops, the earth shakes. And when he looks, the nations tremble. He shatters the everlasting mountains and levels the eternal hills because he is the eternal one. I see the people of Kushan in distress, the nation of Midian trembling in terror. He now borrows from powerful images from nature. It's like when the sunrise is coming over and those rays of light first hit you, you know, like for those of you who commute downtown right around sunrise and you go over Sylvan Hill and all of a sudden there's the light, you know, and everybody comes to a complete stop. And you know, that's another story for another time. But it's like that powerful image. And, and, and then you got pestilence and, and plagues. It's these powerful movements. Then you got the earth shaking. He, he draws on earthquake metaphors. This is the kind of work that God does. And, and he's, he wants us to experience and to feel the power of God. I mean, singing this together, the nations would have done a, nation of Israel would have done a hooah, right? Kind of do that with me. Hooah. Yeah, God, our God is powerful. He's going to win. Yes. He uses powerful imagery to capture this sense of God's power. In verse 8, he he borrows from some more images. Was it anger, Lord, that you struck the rivers and parted the sea? Okay, he's drawing on the story of Israel. Again, the Red Sea, the Jordan River. Were you displeased with them? No. You were sending your chariots of salvation. You brandished your bow and your quiver of arrows. You split open the earth with flowing rivers. The mountains watched and trembled. Onward swept the raging waters. The mighty deep cried out, lifting its hands in submission. Verse 11. It says, the sun and the moon stood still in the sky as your brilliant arrows flew and your glittering spear flashed. You marched across the land in anger and trampled the nations in your fury. You went out to rescue your chosen people, to save your anointed ones. You crushed the heads of the wicked and stripped their bones from head to toe. With his own weapons, you destroyed the chief of those who rushed out like a whirlwind, thinking Israel would be easy prey. You trampled the sea with your horses, the mighty waters piled high. Image after image after image of this powerful God. And it's where it seemed like, I mean, God moved heaven and earth to rescue us. Do you remember that? Especially this picture over and over you see of this rescue through the Red Sea. That was that foundational story. And he did that because he knew what we need to know. And that is, remembering God's story of rescue in the past provides the foundation for trusting God in the present. Especially when we look around and we don't see evidence of his rescue. We remember the stories of his rescue in the past. So first, Habakkuk sang his surrender to God. Second, he sang about his confidence in God through powerful images and stories and words. And doing so led him to the third part of his song, what we might think of as the catharsis moment. This section describes Habakkuk's very real, very personal reaction to all that he had written to that point. He is so honest in this. In verse 16, he says, I trembled inside when I heard this. My lips quivered with fear. My legs gave way beneath me and I shook in terror. I will wait quietly for the coming day when disaster will strike the people who invade us. Notice what he looks to. 
Because the promise, the, the answer in chapter 1 was the nation of Babylon is going to come and conquer them. But that's not what he's paying attention to. One day in chapter 2, we had the messages where God said, no, justice will come to the Babylonians. So that's what he focuses on. One day that God's promise will come true. You see, when we focus on God, when we really focus, seeing him for who he is and what kind of work he does, it causes what the Bible writers call over and over in the Bible, fear and trembling. When you're in the presence of God, that's the only reaction there is because you see how powerful and how big he is. That's what Habakkuk is describing in his own experience of that in vivid detail. In other words, this is a serious gulp moment for him. And it led to the only place it can lead, humble obedience. I will wait quietly. I will wait quietly for your promises to come true. In the presence of who you really are, no matter what happens, no matter how hard or painful or troublesome, I will trust you. I will worship you as if your promises are already fulfilled. I will live as if they are already true. And then we arrive at the last three verses. And in these we find the most, I think one of the most profound statements, if not the most profound statement of faith, not only in the Bible, but in human history. He says, even though the fig trees have no blossoms and there are no grapes on the vines, even though the olive crop fails and the fields lie empty and barren, even though the flocks die in the fields and the cattle barns are empty. In Habakkuk's world, he just described utter ruin. Utter ruin. And to his list, we can add ours. Even though my spouse said, till death do us part, and they abandoned their vows. Even though I raised my kids to seek after God and his ways, and they've wandered far from it. Even though we've prayed over and over for that loved one to be well, and they seemed only to get more and more sick. Even though the finances are tough and the bills are piling up and my car just died even though I don't like it, even though I don't understand it, even though I know you could and I think you should, but you aren't yet. Yet. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in the God of my salvation. Why? The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes me as sure-footed as a deer, able to tread upon the heights. As we sing Habakkuk's song with him, he wants something for us. He wants a way of living for us that could be summed up like this. We remember what God has done. We accept what God is doing. We trust what God is going to do. We remember what God has done. We accept what he's doing right now, and we trust him for whatever will come. And remember, we don't do this with a sense of resignation or apathy or, yeah, okay, whatever, God. No, Shiganoth, vigorous, wholehearted, authentic worship. Habakkuk wrote his story. He wrote down his vision. He, he included his testimony, personal testimony of faith. He put it to music and he invited others to join him in singing it. 
His song not only encouraged the people of his day, but it was preserved and passed down through generations all the way to give us encouragement today. And many others have followed in Habakkuk's footsteps in the centuries since. Because most of our favorite worship songs are actually birthed in tragedy. I don't know if you knew that. Somebody goes through and experiences a hardship. They wrestle with God. They find themselves surrendering to God and putting their trust once again in him and then grabbing a pen and paper and writing it down and putting it to music so that they could worship and invite others to worship with them. That's Shiganoth. Songwriters like Horatio Spafford, one of Chicago's most successful businessmen in the early 20th century, Not only did Spafford have a profitable profitable business, but he also had a loving wife and four beautiful daughters. He He thought his life was so good that at one point he proclaimed to his friends that he was on top of the world. Life couldn't get any better. And the actions of one farm animal changed everything when a cow kicked over a lantern that sparked a fire that, that ended up causing the great Chicago fire. And literally, his entire business went up in flame. The tragedy of his business, it not only hit him hard, but that financial fall affected his wife even more. And so, and so his do- her doctor recommended a vacation might help. And so he arranged an extended trip to Europe. But right before they were supposed to go as a family, a pressing business matter came to him. And so he told his family to go on ahead of him while he took care of that and he would join them later. And then that ship in the middle of the sea ran head on into another ship. And in the course of 12 minutes, 226 people died, including all four of his daughters. As you can imagine, it was devastating for his wife. She made it all the way to Europe and then she sent him a telegram. And so seven days later, he received a telegram and it simply said, saved alone. So he arranged his travel, got on the first ship available and traveled a similar path. And when they got to that point where his daughters had died, the ship's captain was kind enough to let him know. And at that moment, instead of being grief stricken, he found himself with a peace coming over him like he never imagined. And rather than cry, he smiled and then went to his cabin, grabbed pen and paper and wrote the words, the now famous hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. Shiganoth. Then there's John Mark McMillan. On November 1st, 2002, during a church prayer meeting, McMillan's best friend, youth pastor Stephen Coffey, prayed out loud. He said, I would give my life today if it would shake the, new, the youth of this nation. And then that night, he died in a multi-car accident. McMillan was recording a new album in the studio when he received the news that his friend had died. And the next day, he wrote the lyrics to the song, How He Loves, that we sing here pretty regularly. He wrote it, he said, out of a need to have some sort of conversation with God in which he could voice his frustration over his best friend's death. According to McMillan, the love he sings about in that song is not a pretty Hollywood pink kind of love. No, it's the kind that is willing to love even when things are difficult and messy. He said the song is a celebration of a God who would want to be a part of our lives even when we're weak and angry. Shiganoth. 
One more story from this past December, just this last December. Bethel Music, which publishes a lot of the music that we sing here on Sundays. Their CEO, Joel Taylor, and his wife, Janie, took their two-year-old son, Jackson, to the hospital with what they thought was a normal childhood illness. They soon learned that Jackson's kidneys were shutting down due to an E. coli virus attacking his kidneys. Jackson immediately underwent blood transfusions and went on dialysis while suffering from seizures and respiratory issues. Soon after, their four-year-old daughter, Addie, was diagnosed with the same infection. They faced the very real possibility of losing both their son and their daughter. Their worship leader friend, Jonathan Helser, stayed in close contact with the Taylors from the beginning of the crisis. And one night, Jonathan received a text from the Taylors saying that Jackson would likely die that night. And as he prayed for him, After receiving that text, he felt like he couldn't pray because there's this giant of unbelief in front of him. As as he prayed, though, as the the night went on, he said all of a sudden a new song began to form within him. He described it this way. All of a sudden, out of my gut, this song came up in face of the giant. I raise a hallelujah in the presence of my enemies. I raise a hallelujah louder than the unbelief. And that song became an anthem for the tailors and their community through the rest of Jackson's struggles and battle for life. And after several weeks in the hospital and numerous treatments, the tailors left the hospital with two healthy children. Joel described the experience this way. God's timing often doesn't make sense until you look back to see that mountains were climbed and canyons were crossed on no strength of your own. Shiganoff. The deepest worship finds its origins in the deepest valleys in our lives. As we remember what God has done, as we accept what God is doing, as we trust him for what he will do. Amen? And that is the end of Habakkuk. But his story ends, shall we say, undone? Maybe even unsatisfying? At least until we remember that verse that's like a single flower blooming in a hot desert plain. Habakkuk 2.4 The righteous will live by faith. The righteous will live by faith. The righteous will live by faith. It shouts at us that there is a redemption story, a rescue story that is actually the story of the entire universe. And it's centered on the person of Jesus. You see, when Jesus walked the earth, when he lived the life you and I know that we should live but can't, when he died the death you and I deserve because of our sin, he took it on himself and he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death so that we might have a relationship with God. When he did that, he fulfilled most of the Old Testament prophecies, but not all of them. He then departed and went to heaven with the promise that he would return again to fulfill all the promises. And so the story that we live in, the grand cosmic story that we live in, we are in a place of waiting. So the invitation is how will we choose to wait? Habakkuk waited. 
Actually, he wondered in chapter 1. He waited in chapter 2. He worshiped in chapter 3. And Jesus invites us to live our lives that way in light of his great redemption story. And so my prayer for us as a church is that we would worship with Habakkuk 3 kind of vigor, kind of authenticity. But the reality is we can't worship that way without going through chapter 1 wondering, without going through chapter 2 waiting. Because that kind of worship only comes when we remember what, what God has done, when we accept what God is doing, and we trust him for what he will do. The reality is, friends, I don't have all the answers for your doubts and questions. There are too many. But after worshiping God and following Jesus for over 35 years now, here's what I know. I have walked with Jesus for enough yesterdays to trust him with all my tomorrows. Would you pray with me? Father, it's not an easy message. You invite us to wrestle with you about it right here, right now in this place, for those of us who are wrestling with the unknowns, some of us are in great pain, some of us are in great struggle, many of us are crying out, saying, God, where are you? When are you going to come through? Would we take Habakkuk's message in deep, and would we find places of trust? Would you give that to us, that we may hang on to you through these valleys so that we might see your work on the mountaintops? pray, believing that you'll do that in Jesus' name. Amen.